0: I remember that day so well. It was a hot August afternoon, which was strange to me. I had always pictured concentration camps as windswept and snowy. The barracks, crematoria, and remnants of the railroad tracks at Terezin were surrounded by leafy trees, unruly weeds, and swarms of summer insects. And it was quiet. So here's what happened. I met Gidon Lev, and nothing was ever the same again. Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. The Terezín Museum, like most museums, was crammed with facts, photos, and exhibits, and tourists. More people were here than at the small fortress. They shuffled along, listening to their tour guides. I shifted into dutiful museum visitor mode, and proceeded to examine every exhibit with great care and studiousness. Guidon was pleased by how the museum had grown and become more sophisticated since his last visit, almost 20 years prior, and besides, he likes facts. But as we wandered through the museum, both Kidon and I grew a bit detached. By the look of the other tourists, so did they. It was too much to take in, and one became numb, even bored. Holocaust museums all over the world have tried many approaches to make the information presented more personal, bone-deep, and effective. Yet it seemed to me that day that we still have many miles to go. Times are changing, and people are changing along with them. Hidon and I learned that between September 1943 and October 1944, 18 transports were sent from Tarazin to Auschwitz. There were 37,232 people on these transports, a thousand of whom were children. One of the people on one of the last of these transports was Ernst Loh, Hidon's father. He was 45 years old. Ernst was on the last train that left Terrazin for Auschwitz-Birkenau on October 28, 1944. Of the 2,038 people on the train, 1,589 were gassed immediately upon arrival. But not Ernst. He didn't know it, but he still had about two miserable, nightmarish months to live. In Terrazin, as far as prisoners knew, people were put on lists and simply sent east. On one occasion, 5,000 prisoners disappeared from Terezin on a single day. Imagine the impact that would have on a captive population, forced to pretend that life was carrying on as usual, while others were vanishing with regularity. A Jewish committee was forced to draw up the deportation lists. At first, it was the elderly, the sick, the people with mental disabilities. Then it was those who had recently fallen ill or been injured. All the youth leaders were sent to the death camps. The musicians who'd performed the concerts too, The men who designed the layout of the camp. The elders on the committees. Then, it was entire barracks.
1: I remember that my great-grandmother Rosa arrived on one of the last transports from Prague in Terezín, And we went down to the train station to see her. There was this old, sad, and forlorn lady, standing in the center of the transfer building, still full of poise, meticulously dressed, even with, with a little funny-looking hat.
2: My great-grandmother, Rosa, considered herself more German than Jewish. She spoke only German, was assimilated, and loved the German culture. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I learned later that she stayed in Terezin for about two months.
1: before Before she she was was sent to Tremlinka and murdered.
0: In 1942, 30% of the population in Terezin suffered from highly contagious bacterial infections such as scarlet fever, typhoid, and diphtheria. Viral illnesses with potentially devastating outcomes such as polio or encephalitis were present in equal numbers. That didn't include other, more ordinary illnesses such as the flu or bronchial infections. Think for a moment how important nutrition, hygiene, and rest are in fighting disease. Take into consideration the impact that lice infestations, overcrowding, beatings, and despair had on physical and mental well-being. Imagine the elderly and the children. From my childhood, I remember waiting for the ice cream truck and being read aloud to on someone's lap. I remember singing, clapping, kindergarten, pets, and cookies. What must it have been like to be without those things, with no hot baths, no favorite book, no soft kittens to pet, with hunger and fear so bone-deep and unrelenting, when the social fabric consisted of shouts and blows and missing people, how grim-faced those children must have become. How did those who survive manage to build or regain a sense of normalcy, of play, of joy? I circled back to the thing about Gidon that astounded me. Not just that he saw these things and that he lived them, but that he wanted to keep being a part of this world afterward.
1: I knew one woman and her daughter, who, for a while, was living in the same room as we were, and I remember being... In love with her.
2: I was seven or eight years old, and she was very pretty, and she was also very agile. She did tumbling, standing on her hands, and stuff. One day, they received a notice that we all feared. They had to report to the train station for the next transport to the east. I was so heartbroken for days, I would not speak to anyone. Not even my mother, who couldn't understand why I was acting so strange.
1: Of Of course, course. they never never came back. back. And I cried silently for days. And I didn't even know that they were sent to their death. I missed them, especially my girlfriend. She was the first girlfriend I ever had.
0: If little Gidon had noticed the enormous numbers of other people who were suddenly not there anymore. How the cold wind of bottomless despair must have blown in Terezin. How intense the anxiety, the grief, the anger, and fear. Day in and day out, trains came to Terezin and stood motionless in the cold as prisoners from the camp were lined up after having been asked to turn in their ration cards and ID numbers and shouted at, beaten, and forced into cattle cars. At least 80 people were in each cattle car, with no food, no water, nowhere to sit down, and a freezing cold journey that lasted for hours and was headed straight toward the death camps. Then, new trains came with new prisoners who spoke different languages and who were used to perform all manners of tasks needing to keep the camp running, until they were of no use.
2: On one rare occasion, my father got permission to visit us, my mother and me, for a short half hour, and he spent a few minutes with just me. I was conflicted, filled with both joy and sadness, because it was so quick, and he also told us that Grandpa Alfred had died. He said, Petrel, I need to spend a little time with your mom. Maybe they will give me permission to see you again. Like
1: so many promises promises and hopes hopes before, this one too was crushed. I never saw my father again.
2: A year or so later, my father sent a note to us that he was being sent to the east, to Auschwitz, and that my mother should try to come down to the train station the next day. He had something for her. I don't know how, but my mother did manage to get to the train just that it was pulling out and saw my father, who threw a little package to her as the train picked up speed. She took the parcel and ran before a German officer would shoot her. It was a necklace with a charm. It
1: It was was the emblem emblem of of the the town town of Terezin, carved with the date April 8th, 1944. I don't have any idea how he got this made, nor how he paid for it. I have it with me to this very day. I wear it from time to time, on special occasions to remind me that I once had a father.
0: Gidon was wearing that pendant the day at the Terezin Museum. It was indeed a special occasion. Gidon had always believed that the date on the emblem was the date of his father's departure. But we found out that this was not true. Ernst was sent to Auschwitz on October 28, 1944. So what did the date signify? As far as we could tell, it didn't correspond to any notable dates at Terezin, nor did it correspond to any birth or anniversary dates in Gidon's family. Maybe Ernst traded his bread for an emblem that already had a date on it, and it meant something to someone we'll never know. Or perhaps the date says something that was only between Doris and Ernst. Strangely enough, today, Terrazin is a village where people actually live. There was a laundromat, a hardware store, an ice cream store, and a couple of cafes, although the streets were almost entirely empty of people other than tourists. Both an open-air museum and an actual town. The barracks are set apart. Some are crumbling, and others are now apartments that have been renovated, I presume, for today's terrazin village dweller by choice. The Dresden, the now-dilapidated barracks where Guidon once lived, was cordoned off and marked as dangerous to enter. Peering inside the broken windows, we saw trash and graffiti, remnants of some other, more recent life. We came upon a trio of young backpackers with wiry beards and indistinct accents. They were not touring the camp. They were simply trekking across it to reach some other, more interesting destination. The hikers were friendly, though, and told us where to look for what remained of the railroad tracks upon which prisoners arrived and were sent east. It wasn't as dramatic as the emblematic shot from the nine-hour documentary Shoah. It was just some railroad tracks, overgrown with weeds. Still, Gidan and I plucked a few nearby flowers and laid them down on the tracks. We were done. <laughs> One Gidon wanted to go to Lidice, a small village about 14 miles northwest of Prague. I didn't want to go. We were back in Prague for only one day, and I lobbied hard to go to the Mucha Museum. Gidon was having none of it. Something had happened at Lidice, Gidon told me. Something terrible. A massacre. A reprisal. He had never, on previous visits to the Czech Republic, gone to see Lidice. Now, Gidon felt it was time. Out of respect, he said, and a loyalty to fellow Czechs who'd suffered Nazi atrocities. I had no idea that anything could be more excruciating and disturbing than what we'd already seen, but it was. To say that the massacre at Lidice, which took place on June 10, 1942, was savage would be to understate what happened by a magnitude of 10,000. Resistance to the Nazis in Czechoslovakia was an impassioned one. Still, when Hitler appointed Reinhard Heydrich, the deputy acting Reich protector of Bohemia and Moravia, the resistance went into overdrive. By way of placing Heydrich on the scale of malignant Nazi evil, a highlight of his career was chairing the Wannsee Conference, at which the final solution was devised. Heydrich was, in other words, one of the most sociopathic Nazi bastards imaginable. A plan was set in motion by the Czech government in exile to assassinate him in what was called Operation Anthropoid. The assassins, part of the Czech resistance movement, were parachuted into Czechoslovakia five months before the planned date of the attack. On May twenty-seventh, 1942, as Heydrich's car rounded a hairpin curve, one of the assassins stepped into the road and took aim with his gun. It jammed. The other commando in the operation acted swiftly and threw a bomb under the wheels of the car. The bomb went off. Heydrich sustained fatal injuries, succumbing in a hospital a few days later. There's an urban myth that Heydrich died because he refused the medical care of Czech doctors, preferring only German doctors. Hitler was enraged. (laughs) He ordered that 10,000 Czechs be killed outright. He wanted to show the Czechs that resistance would not be tolerated. Instead, 36,000 homes in Prague were raided. By June 4th, 157 Czechs had been executed. But Hitler wasn't done. He ordered that any village with ties to the assassination should be entered, and that his soldiers were to 1. Execute all adult men. 2. Transport all women to a concentration camp. Three, gather children suitable for Germanization, place them in SS families in the Reich, and bring the rest of the children up in other ways. Germanization? What does that mean exactly? I asked historian John Lestrange, who, with a master's degree in Holocaust and Genocide Studies, can help us better understand.
3: In general, Germanization is nothing more than the spread of German language, culture, and ideas. But as far as the Nazis were concerned, it carried far less of a nationalistic flavor and far more of an ethno-racial one. Now, the first step in the Nazi version of Germanization was the creation of the Deutsche Volkliste, which aimed to classify inhabitants of Nazi-occupied territories into categories of desirability. Himmler wanted to ensure that not a single drop of German blood would be lost or left behind. So the aim of the Deutsch Volksliste and this initial aspect of Germanization was to identify every single person out in Europe with even a drop of German blood in them and start them on the Germanization process. General Plan Ost was also an aspect of Germanization in Poland. Its primary purpose was to take ethnic Poles and deport them to the westernmost areas of Poland and then resettle ethnic Germans in the Polish heartland. And this process of Germanization could very easily be referred to as either an ethnic cleansing or a genocide because in addition to spreading the German language and culture to these people to bring out as much of their German blood as possible, it also sought to destroy any vestiges of the original culture that they had been raised under. Because any culture that wasn't German and thus Aryan was inherently inferior. Anyone who refused to be Germanized would be executed so that the Nazis wouldn't have to suffer the loss of pure German blood. And anyone who couldn't be Germanized would be deported out of the German heartlands into the hinterlands. Children were especially targeted for Germanization, especially if they had traditionally Nordic traits like blonde hair or blue eye. Any child who was fit for Germanization would be taken away from the family that they were born into, given away to a German family, and raised as a proper German child. If attempts to Germanize them failed, or if they were ultimately deemed unfit, those children would then be executed so that the Reich's enemies would not have access to that pure and powerful German blood. The massacre at Lidice was a prime example of what Nazi Germanization processes looked like. All of the men were killed, and all of the women and children were deported, and any child who was deemed potentially fit for Germanization was sent off to live with a German family. In total of the 81 children survivors from the Lidice village, only 9 were deemed appropriate for Germanization. The rest of the children were sent to the Chelmo concentration camp, where most historians believe that they were sent to the mobile gas chambers that very same day.
0: Mobile gas chambers were what looked like delivery trucks. The exhaust was rigged up to flow into the back where the children were. The drivers listened to the screams and crying for about 20 minutes until they arrived at a mass burial site. By then, everybody was dead. A visit to a museum perched on a hill overlooking what had been the village of Lidice took Idon and me through the events of that day. On June 9, 1942, late at night, the villagers were awoken by the sound of crunching gravel. The killing team had arrived. The villagers were told to pack warm clothes and gather in the town square. In the early morning hours of June 10, the killing began. Sources vary, but between 173 and 192 men and boys over the age of 15 were lined up and blindfolded. At first, the men were lined up five at a time and shot, but that was too slow, so they were lined up ten at a time. When they fell, the next ten men shuffled forward, were shot, and fell on top of the previous bodies. Mattresses were placed behind them so the bullets wouldn't ricochet. It took all day. The women were sent to concentration camps, primarily Ravensbrück, 56 miles north of Berlin. Some of the children were placed in the homes of SS officers to be Germanized. More than eight children were deemed not passable as Aryan and sent to Helmno, where they were gassed in the back of a truck. The houses in the village were blown up. The church, too. The town was set on fire. All pets and beasts of burden were slaughtered. The trees were cut down. The graveyard dug up the bodies looted for any valuables. Within days, a German workforce was dispatched to Lidice to reroute the stream that ran through it and reroute the road to Lidice as well. Topsoil was brought in and crops were planted. Lidice was wiped off the map as though it had never existed. The black-and-white footage in the museum's informational film showed the aftermath. Stained, torn mattresses, heaps of rubble, household goods strewn about. A crater where the church once was. There were photos of the blindfolded men stumbling forward, pale, their faces stricken. The bodies of the men killed just before them were sprawled in front of them. The Nazis documented the destruction on film. The savage fate of Lidice, unlike other Nazi atrocities, was publicly revealed by Hitler with pride. Lidice was an example. That was a mistake. Allied media found the footage, and the news of the fate of Lidice raced around the world. Funds to help remember the victims were raised from as far away as England. Towns in Mexico, Venezuela, and Brazil renamed themselves Lidice. In Illinois, a neighborhood of Crest Hill was renamed as well. There's a grainy film clip of the 1947 Lidice War Crimes Trial held in the People's Court of Pankratz. It is titled The Trial of the Butcher of Lidice. The soundless clip is only 48 seconds long. In it, dozens of defendants sit, stony-faced, somewhere translation headsets. I scan their faces over and over to look for remorse or maybe fear— The film shows men who mostly look somewhere between bored, resigned, and defiant. The camera pans to show several women listening to the proceedings. They look pale and serious. It's hard to tell what they're thinking. An official shuffles papers and uncaps a pen. The film ends. When Guidon and I stood outside, overlooking the green hills where Lidice had once been, I noticed a semi-transparent photograph of the village as it used to be, It was positioned so that it was superimposed over the current-day emptiness. We took turns looking through it in silence. Village? Nothing. Village? Nothing. At length, Guidon spoke. They weren't Jews. His voice broke. He seemed to swallow some deep emotion that was threatening to make him cry. I understood what he meant. Fascism had no loyalty, no mercy. It mowed down everyone and everything in its path like a voracious machine. Nearby the museum, there's an art gallery with more information about the massacre. We peeked inside and noticed that the exhibits were minimalist, modern, abstract art. I wasn't usually drawn to art like that, but we went inside and found that actually these wordless exhibits of slashed color or empty space, broken records or nails, were exactly the right response in this speechless void that the Holocaust wrenched out of us like a gasp. One video exhibit created by a Bulgarian artist stayed with me, though I wasn't sure why. In the video, a line of black-clad police stand rigidly, ominously, on the perimeter of a government building, their hands folded behind their backs. A disquieting, distorted, low, whistling sound— like an unearthly howl, grows as black balloons drift and bump around the policeman's legs in increasing numbers. Lidice is but one example of such Nazi reprisals. Here are some others. In Rome on March 24, 1944, 335 Italian prisoners were forced into a cave and made to kneel. They were shot point-blank to save bullets. In a village near Bologna in Italy, from September 29th to October 5th, 1944, more than 770 villagers, men, women, and children, were massacred when the Nazis used flamethrowers and bombs to set the entire village on fire. Villagers who tried to escape were shot. In Albania on July 6, 1943, Nazis set the village on fire after 107 villagers, mostly children and elderly women, were forced inside the burning church. In a small village in France on June 10, 1944, 642 villagers were killed. Men were forced into a barn and shot in the legs with machine guns before the Nazis set the barn on fire. Nazis also forced women and children into a church, and a bomb was detonated on the side of it. Those who tried to escape were shot with machine guns. I felt parts of my conscious thoughts struggling to connect, to process. I just couldn't make it work in my brain. It seemed to me that like time or the universe or death, the Holocaust was a kind of super object that defied our ability to make sense of it. This thing, this cataclysmic orgy of horror, cruelty, debasement, and violence not only happened, but also happened in a sustained way in millions of connected moments, some of which occurred in Rome or in Terrazin, or in front of freshly dug ditches and countless forests. Other connected moments happened in a town square in Poland or a barn set afire in France or in Italy while people burned alive inside. The Holocaust occurred in courtrooms and on the streets and on hooks and walls and classrooms, and trucks, and gas chambers, and cities, and villages. In the late 1930s and through 1945, hatred and brutality spread across Europe like a forest fire. Soon, it was unstoppable. My mind reeled when I thought about other genocides and atrocities in history. Cambodia, Bosnia, Serbia, Rwanda, Darfur, and the Armenian Genocide. In the fall of 2017, not long before I met Gidon, I traveled to Sarajevo, Bosnia. I spent a week there and went to Srebrenica, where in July 1995, in the space of three days, 8,000 Bosnian Muslim men and boys were massacred and buried in mass graves in the forest. The area was preternaturally quiet, lush, green, and still. It was gloomy that day, I remember, and there, too, birds swooped overhead. It seemed as though nature had drawn a curtain over the past and was letting it grow over with weeds. I felt in the stillness a tense feeling in the air, as if the spores of evil could reanimate if there was a big enough gust of wind or a sudden downpour. Thinking back to that visit, an embarrassing memory made its way into my consciousness— after touring the large silent cemetery in Sebrnitsa, marked with white markers for those bodies that could be identified after being exhumed from mass graves, sometimes even years later, I came upon two young men who were visiting the grave of a relative. Both men had been there but were toddlers and so were spared. Without warning, I burst into racking tears and asked if I could hug them. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I wept into their somewhat surprised arms. Here— Before me were people who had been directly touched by the massacre. They made it real to me. Remembering this, I suddenly got it. I completely understood why people sometimes do this to Gidon. They cry, ask to hug him, take his photo. Survivors are the embodiment, the proof of such things that we cannot imagine. Gidon and I returned to Israel after our trip to the Czech Republic in two different moods. Gidon, it seemed, felt a sense of sadness, yes, but also of closure and reckoning. But I was going through an awful rite of initiation into the unspeakable. In addition to our visit, I had read dozens of books about the Holocaust and watched hours of documentaries about the final solution, the Nuremberg trials, Himmler, Goering, Goebbels, Ilse Koch, the Bitch of Buchenwald, and the capture and trial of Eichmann and John Demanyuk. I read Elie Wiesel, I read Primo Levi and Viktor Frankl, I visited three Holocaust museums and read hundreds of articles and lists of atrocities. I had become a student not just of Guidon's life, not only of the Holocaust, but also of man's inhumanity to man, full stop. Worse, the gap was closing. Things that seemed like distant black-and-white newsreel footage were becoming real for me by my exposure to them, my relationship with Guidon, and the news of the day. Now it seemed that there was a bridge between Guidon's lifetime and my own. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. You can learn more about Guidon Lev at www.thetrueadventures.com And be sure to follow Gidon on TikTok. Special thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Macht and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Croom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Rabah El Iran for being the voice of young Guidon. Special thanks to John Lestrange, who you can find teaching about history on TikTok as the History Wizard.